You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. Well, good morning again, everyone, and a special welcome to those who are both here in person and online. Welcome back for what is our fourth and final week of a sermon series we've been in ever since the beginning of Advent, a sermon series we've been calling A New Way. You see, uh, if you are new to our church or new to a church that celebrates Advent, this is a new discipline for you. Advent is a season in the Christian calendar every year, this time of year, where we get a chance to start again. We get a chance to re-engage. We get a chance to recommit back to the people we want to be, that God's called us to be. And I don't know about you, but the reason why I love Advent so much is because Advent's always super timely. Advent shows up as a reminder uh, that I need invitations like this throughout the course of the year, because if you're anything like me throughout the course of the year, what do you do? You Forget. (laughs) You forget the person that you're trying to be. You forget the invitation that God has placed upon your life to be someone new. And so this Advent season, that's the invitation. The invitation is to put down the old, old ways of thinking, old ways of living, old patterns and behaviors that are getting you nowhere and re-engaging the new. Over the last several weeks, we've talked about uh, all the different forms that this could take place for you. So maybe this Advent season, what you feel stirring in you is you feel a call to re-engage being a person of peace or being a person of patience or being a person of forgiveness or being a person of generosity or maybe for you, just a person of faith again altogether. And today what we're going to do is we're going to land the plane and we're going to wrap up this sermon series uh, with one last conversation on yet another thing that I believe Advent is inviting us back into this season. I think uh, this Advent, uh, what the Spirit is inviting us into, uh, all of humanity, I might add, is something that uh, not much of humanity has been practicing lately. It's something that No matter where you look, it doesn't seem like we're getting a lot of examples of people cultivating and inhabiting and practicing this part of the Christian life. You see, friends, today what I want to talk about is how Advent is an invitation for a whole bunch of things. But amongst them, it's an invitation to re-engage hope. Advent is an invitation for you and I to recommit ourselves to being people of hope. And to be very fair, uh, there's actually a really good reason why you and I don't see a lot of hope nowadays. There's actually a really good reason why when you look around, you don't see a lot of hopeful people out in the world. It's because if these last two years have taught us anything, they've taught us to expect the worst. Seems like every day you wake up, there's something new, new challenge, new sort of uh, a new shoe that was being dropped, a new worst case scenario that was unfolding before our very eyes. In fact, over the last couple of years, it got so bad, we made a board game out of it. You played this game? I played it the other day. I wasn't having fun. I was learning. Like I was taking notes, I was writing down, like what would I actually do if I was attacked by a bear? What would I actually do if I found myself falling through a sheet of ice into an ice uh, lake? You laugh, 
but do you know what you would do with a runaway camel? Let's find out. If ever you find yourself on a runaway camel, there are three options. Only one is the right answer. You can either pull it back on the stirrups. That will calm it down. You can hold on until it calms down on its very own. Or option C, you can scream into its ears as loud as you can. Okay? Let's find out. Ready? How many of you are option A? Pull back on the stirrups. That's, gonna, that's, that's what you do. That's what you do. Okay? Option B. I'm going to hold on. I'm going to wait for that sucker to calm down. Okay? Maybe slip in an ambient. All right? And option C, I'm going to scream into its ears as loud as possible. This is just like 9 a.m. I'm not going camel riding with any of you. <laughs> B is the correct answer. B, if you find yourself later today on a runaway camel, number one, I want to know what you get into on the weekends because that sounds like a super fascinating life. And two, you got to hold on. Wait till it calms down, and I hope you didn't die in the process, okay? But this is kind of like, we joke, but this is like kind of where our brains have gone, right? Almost like the last couple of years have just trained you, not to be a person of hope, but to be a person who just always expects things are just not going to quite work out. And after you leave here today, I'm going to be very honest, um, the forces at work in the world are actually not going to help that. When you leave here today, uh, no one's going to criticize you. No one's going to blame you for having a more negative, pessimistic outlook on the world and on life. In fact, by our culture standards, it actually feels wrong to not be a person of skepticism and cynicism and pessimism, right? It almost seems like the people who are not doing those things have their head in the sand or something. But the question that I want you to sit with this Advent season, the question that I feel like Jesus is placing upon my life, placing upon, I think, all of our lives, is, sure, that might be the world and the culture in which we inhabit, but the question that you and I need to sit with is this. Is that who you want to be? Is that who you want to be? Sure, it might protect you from some things. It might make you more prepared sometimes to always anticipate the worst, to be a person of despair, not hope. Ugh. But is that who you want to be? The problem is they don't tell you this. They don't tell you this, uh, that uh, if you do live this way, the only problem is if you train yourself to only see brokenness, you never see beauty. If you engage in the world and the only thing you see is what's wrong, you'll miss all the good. And so again, some of you are sitting there like, yeah, and I'm fine with that. That's fine. And that's fine. If that's who you are and that's where you want to be, that's totally fine. Uh, but friends, this Advent season is an invitation for those who, like me maybe, you're just tired. You're tired of only seeing what's wrong. You're tired of only hearing about what is broken. And you, this season, want to hear the larger, richer, fuller story. And if that's you, you got a good companion. Let's dig in. 
So let's go back to our scripture passage for today uh, and see about our companion on that journey, uh, someone who is trying to battle that same exact thing. If you've got your Bibles with you or you're watching this online, you've got a smart device handy and you want to sort of track with us. Today we're going to be camped out in Isaiah chapter 52. Uh, the book of Isaiah is what we've been studying the last several weeks. And to give all of us a little bit of context, um, if you study the book of Isaiah, it actually is one book, but it's in three volumes. Three volumes. So most scholars have it uh, written down this way, have it uh, sort of have studied and found this to be true, that Isaiah 1, uh, volume 1, is chapters 1 through 39. And those were actually, it's believed, written before the people of Israel went into exile. So if you go back and reread it, you'll find that to be true, that like, a lot of the messaging is like, stop acting like this, we don't want the destruction to happen, like please, and they don't listen. And so Isaiah, chapter, or Isaiah volume 2, which is chapters 40 through 55, actually, historically, takes place during exile. The person who wrote down the contents of Isaiah chapter 40 through 55, it was written while they were prisoners living in captivity. And so that's super important information for you and I to understand because it affects how we interpret and understand what he's saying in chapter 52. And it actually begins to make a ton of sense why he starts the entire chapter in this way, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 1, we didn't read this a moment ago, but it's the, I think it's important for context. Where he starts off the chapters, he starts with, yo, like, wake up! Wake up! Put on your strength, Zion. Put on your splendid clothing. What he's doing is, remember, he's speaking to people who have been living in exile. Israel lived in exile for 70 years. 7-0. 70 years. So he's speaking to people who have been sedated They've been sort of lulled to sleep by despair. They haven't seen anything else. They haven't seen anything different for years. If they were in captivity for seven years, that means some people were born and died still in captivity. It's all they saw. It's all they knew. And so right here, first and foremost, what we see is this. What Isaiah's understanding about his audience, his context is that if we're ever going to have a conversation about hope, if we're ever going to try to get people to see and believe in hope and goodness again, first and foremost, the first step to hope is actually humility. Humility. The first step to finding hope yourself or trying to be uh, an instrument of hope in someone else's life is humility. Now, that doesn't sound right. It's like, what? I don't don't normally link those two things together that I need humility to find hope but I'll explain. Why you first need humility to find hope is because oftentimes people who are in despair, they're certain about it. They know the whole story. One of the things that despair will tempt you to do, two traps that despair and suffering and pain and pessimism, what it'll do to you is it'll teach you to believe these two things. It'll teach you to believe only what you can see, So only believe what you can see. Only what you see is what's actually real in the world. Okay? That's what the people of Israel are doing. They're sitting in exile. They haven't known anything different. And so they're tempted to believe this must be it. This must be existence. Just living in this miserable place and being mistreated all the time. And secondarily, the other thing that despair and pessimism and negativity, like living in that space, one of the traps that it'll set for you is it'll also tempt you to believe Everything you think is true. I'll give you an example. If 
from my own life. Uh, so back in high school, um, I uh, was in love. High school love, real love, okay? We held hands, I shared lunch money, she wore my puka shell necklace on a couple of days when things got really serious. Some of you are not laughing because you don't know what puka shell necklaces are, but go home and Google that-ish. That's a good gift item for somebody this holiday season. So things are going well until they didn't go well, and uh, when things broke off, it was ultimately because she cheated. And one of the things that was interesting for me to now look back upon as an older person, to look back upon, is it took me like a couple of years. That was my first serious relationship. It, was, it took me a couple of years to go, oh, like that, that, what all, only, the only thing I could see was that experience. And it would have been super tempting for the rest of my life to only believe that is true of relationships. And simultaneously, it would have been super tempting, and it was super tempting for the first couple of years after that, to believe that everything I thought about relationships, about women, about whatever, was true. But it wasn't the only thing that was true, right? Life teaches you there's more, that beyond brokenness, beyond pain, there is beauty if you're open to it. Some of you know this well. You know this from your own experience. You've got these own experiences in your life where you're like, holy cow, I always only thought this was true until this person came along or this experience came along and busted it open to the indefinite possibilities of what else could happen to me, in me, in life. And so Isaiah just fundamentally understands, and I think we have to understand that it's good and well and wonderful to talk about hope, but long before you can be a person of hope, you have to be humble enough to accept the possibility that maybe, just maybe, that there is more going on in your life right now than what you can currently see. And you also have to make room for the strong possibility that not everything you think is true, that there might be more out there. And if you can never break free from those two things, you don't get to hear the rest of where he goes after this. So let's keep going. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 52. Let's pick it up in verse 7, the, verse, the passage that we actually are studying for today. Skipping down to verse 7, it reads this way. So he keeps going. He's, again, he's taking these people who are they're, they're, they're sedated with despair. They're just walking around very numb and just sort of not really living. They're just existing. And he's trying to shake them free and reinvigorate them with hope. And he says these words. He says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of a messenger who proclaims peace, who brings good news, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God rules. Notice something about the way in which Isaiah talks about hope. This is an active hope, right? This is an something that you are called to embody, you're called to practice. Oftentimes, whenever we talk about hope, we talk about it in the context of like, man, I just waste, I'm waiting for someone to come to me and bring me hope. And that's a passive waiting. Advent season is about an active waiting, actively embodying the very thing that you're waiting upon. In other words, I said this a couple of weeks ago, put it differently, I said this, I said, so often in the Christian life, we wait passively for more peace or more courage, and oftentimes what happens is 
the moment we're willing to step out and offer it to someone else, that's precisely the moment when we start finding more of it in our lives. And so maybe the, the question, the real question this Advent season, especially for those of us who are starving for hope, is this. It's almost flipped. If you're waiting on hope, when was the last time you offered hope to someone else? I'm serious. When was the last time you granted someone else the gift of hope? Now, whenever we pose that question, it's a big question. So you're just like, oh my gosh, like that's too much pressure. I don't know about all that. But actually, if you put it on the ground, like if it just makes it really, really simple, this is what hope is. Hope at its core, at its core, is giving someone the gift of seeing a future that they cannot see. If you boil it down, get to the really root of it. Hope is helping someone see a future that they currently cannot see for themselves. I will never, ever forget. I will never, ever forget one time when someone gave us that gift. You see, back in uh, 2017, so the advent of 2017, this is a quick look at us way back then with our little stinkers. My son, notice in the very bottom right-hand corner, is not wearing shoes uh, because no shoes that day. So we didn't fight that, even though we were taking fancy Christmas pictures. Okay, whatever. And on the outside, I guess I'm showing this picture because back in 2017, my son's not even a one-year-old. And if you look at that picture from the outside, it looks like we're happy and enjoying all of the wonderful things that that experience and that season of life gives you with. What this picture doesn't tell is that behind the scenes, we were struggling. My wife was experiencing postpartum depression, and we didn't experience it the first time with our first child, so this was new for us. Didn't know this was a thing that we, like, weren't really indoctrinated with it, weren't really, didn't really know the tools or the skills to sort of how to move through it. And so it was a really, really dark season for us. And the moment we found hope was when someone gave us the gift of standing next to us and saying, hey, I've been there too. And guess what? I survived and you will too. They gave us the gift of knowing, number one, we're not alone, and number two, that there's a, there's a future to the story that we can't see. Sometimes when you're, you're, in, you're in this sort of cloud of despair, you can't see, and this is, why you can't, this is why you can't do faith alone. You need people to come alongside you and remind you, yo, there's more up ahead that you can't see. Hope is the gift of showing someone that there's more to their story than just the really hard chapters in the middle. And maybe for you as you're listening to this, maybe your experience, your story, or the thing that's sort of like sitting with you right now is not as heavy. The, the, the example in your life is not as dire as this one. That's okay, but I'm willing to guarantee you've got someone in your life who needs to see a future they cannot see. Maybe it's someone who's struggling in their marriage or someone who's struggling in their relationships or someone who's struggling in parenting or maybe, again, it's someone struggling in the realm of mental health. This week, again, we lost one of our beloved celebrities who battled under the surface with severe depression. We lost him. 
proving yet again that this, what we need in the realm particularly of despair is more honesty and more willingness to come forward and share maybe, just maybe, what you're going through is not the end. Maybe there's more that you can't see and I'll walk with you to find it together. And so this Advent season, if you're searching for hope, maybe the first question I want to pose to you, the first question I want to challenge you with this season is where and who might be in need of hope, might be in need of you telling a story they cannot see, telling about an ending they cannot see. Let's keep going. Uh, pick it up with verse 8. So verse 8, he keeps going. He keeps talking about uh, this hope. He keeps talking about how to find it, how to embody it, how to cultivate it, how to, again, re-engage it uh, this, uh, in this season that they're going through. And he says this. He says, also, listen, your lookouts lift their voice. They sing out together. Right before their eyes, they see the Lord returning to Zion. What the author is talking about here is that there's this now, there's these two factions forming. There are lookouts people who are looking ahead to reconciliation, looking ahead to rejuvenation. They believe it's coming, and we can defer, or we can sort of intuit that um, one of the things that is also true is probably now another group that's not doing that, right? They're sitting around, they're in their despair, they're in their struggle, they're in their darkness, and they're not looking ahead, believing that the goodness will ever come. And so I love the practical advice here in verse 8 because I think what Isaiah Isaiah is trying to say here is if you want to find hope again this Advent season, uh, pay really close attention to the company you keep. Pay really close attention. Do an inventory of the voices in your life who are defining reality. Who are the people who are influencing the way in which you see the world and how broken and or beautiful It is. I like to put it this way. Advent is a really good opportunity to do an inventory on who are the storytellers in your life. Who are the storytellers in your life? And by the way, you may not know this, but you've got a ton of them. In fact, there's no point in human history where we've had more storytellers in our lives trying to define what's true, what's real, what's right. You have storytellers at home, you have storytellers at work, you have storytellers on the radio, you have storytellers on social, you have storytellers on whatever news outlet you tune into. Every single one of them is clamoring for your attention because they want to define what is actually true of the world. And I just don't, I don't care how strong we think we are or how like in control we think we are. If you fill yourself with worldviews and perspectives that don't align with how you see the world, how could that not affect you? How could that not change the way you see the people in your home, outside your home, at work, you name it? How could that not happen? I'm a systematic thinker. I'm a graphic um, visual person, and so I, I built this. So this is the way I see it. This is the way I see it. That every single person who has a voice in your life, every storyteller in your life. You could probably put them in one of these five buckets. One of these five buckets. You've got people in the world who believe the, uh, the universe and everything is just totally broken. That's all they see. It's the worst. Nothing. It's not even worth like, trying to help. It's not even worth trying to change anything because it's all just a 
complete hot mess. And then, on the far opposite side, you've got people who believe it's totally beautiful. We don't see suffering here in this household. We see opportunities for goodness and to rise above. Blessings. It's always blessings. Blessings. And then you've got these people in between. And what I did was, I was sitting with this a little bit longer, and I was like, man, it's super interesting to think about the people that I spend time with and I listen to. Because every single population group or storyteller you surround yourself with runs a risk. Looks like this. Looks like this. So if you only spend time with people on the far left who are, it's despairing, it's, 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 it's broken, it's all just one big hot mess, how could you not have a very despairing worldview. But simultaneously, if you go to the opposite extreme and you only spend time with people who only see beauty, they ignore all the brokenness, they ignore all the pain, that's a risk too. You risk becoming dishonest. Dishonest about the issues in the world, dishonest with yourself, dishonest about the suffering other people are enduring. And again, you've got these sort of other options in the middle. And I don't do this perfectly whatsoever, whatsoever. But here's what I'm finding to be true. The only place that I have consistently found Jesus is right smack dab there in the middle. It's spending time with people, spending time in communities who are honest about the fact that so much of life is this mixed bag of all of it. Good gracious. Most days you wake up, the morning will be full of beauty, only at lunchtime to turn around and be full of brokenness for the rest of the day, right? It's all of it, all the time. But when you see the implication of living that way, you begin to see very clearly why there's not more people in the middle. It's because it's so hard and it's so heartbreaking to live in that place because you'll see both of it. You'll see someone live into their potential. You'll see someone maximize the opportunity given to them. And then the next day, you'll watch them throw it all away. And the next day, you might get the opposite yet again. It's both and all the time. C.S. Lewis had this quote. He used to say, the path of love is the riskiest path you'll ever take. It is, isn't it? If you love anything or anyone, it's the (laughs) riskiest thing you'll ever do. Problem is, it's also the godliest. It's the place where you will find Jesus most often. So again, you want to find some hope uh, this Advent season. You want to cultivate that more in your life. Uh, I want I want to challenge you to spend really, really, spend some time intentionally interrogating and doing an inventory of like who, what communities am I surrounding myself with? And how do they see the world? And does it align with how Jesus saw it or not? The third one is this. The third recommendation uh, that uh, Isaiah has for us uh, is this. So you go back to Isaiah chapter 52, now skip down to verse 9. So he's wrapping up this letter. He's wrapping up this letter that 
was written down was most likely a speech before that that he gave to the people of Israel, and he says this. He says, break into song together, you ruins of Jerusalem. The Lord has comforted his people and redeemed Jerusalem. And so uh, what's important to point out, again, they're living in exile. So they're living in Assyria. So they're not anywhere close to Jerusalem. So for Isaiah to be speaking to Jerusalem was sort of like the Shakespearean moment. He sort of like stepped out and like aimed in the direction of Jerusalem and was speaking into the sort of abyss of nothingness, which I can only imagine at that point some people were either embarrassed for him or they thought he was completely nuts. They were just like, okay, he's now talking to rocks. Let's get out of here. Like that was really cute and fun to listen to for a couple of minutes, but let's, let's get away. Children, don't look at him, don't listen to him. Okay, so he's, in a word, he has now gotten to the place or he doesn't care. He's actually willing to be embarrassed, even pitied for his hope. And so we're going to play Would You Rather one more time, okay? We're going to play Would You Rather one more time, okay? And you have to play, and you have to pick one or the other, okay? Would you rather, would you rather be someone who lives their life in such a way where more often than not you are embarrassed on an account of your hope or accepted because of your pessimism. If you were forced to choose who you were going to be, would you rather be someone who sometimes is going to stand alone and pitied, even misunderstood because of the hope that you have? Or bump that. I'd rather just be accepted and conform for seeing the world how most people see it. Last Sunday, uh, I was standing right over here and uh, had a conversation with one of our our members. She walked up to me and um, she said, and we've, we've been in dialogue for the last several weeks, uh, and she's navigating um, separation in her marriage. And she's asked me point blank, she said, am I, am I crazy for praying for reconciliation? Am I, pr- am I crazy for praying for resolution? You want to know why she asked that question? It's because of most of the storytellers in her life, were calling her that. Maybe not using those words, but saying things like, what are you doing? Like, come on, just like, you know, just sever the emotions off and just sort of like move on. Like, just move on with your life. Just sort of like shut the heart down and let's just move on and move into the future and just forget that stuff ever happened. And this person said something to me right over there that I will never forget. She said, the only problem is, that's not who I am. And what I heard her say, Kyle's words now, was that I'd rather be someone who is full of hope and than someone who is full of despair and right. And I 
walked away from that exchange thinking, dadgummit, I think she's on to something. Because if we're thinking about who we worship, if we're thinking about who we follow, when Jesus was forced to choose, Jesus said, I'd rather die because of my hope than live because of my despair. you. What about me? I'll close here. Uh, Banji, go ahead and come on up. I'll close um, by uh, saying this. So um, I'm going to give you a little bit of insight into the life of a pastor. Okay? Um, One of the challenges that pastors have uh, is that sometimes, sometimes we broach conversations and those particular subjects that we are broaching um, could be misunderstood. And as a result of that, could do a lot of harm. One of those conversations is the very big, hairy, complex topic of hope. And every single time a pastor, I don't care who the heck they are, stands on stages like this and dares to preach on the subject of hope, you run the risk of causing the church to fall right back into one of our worst habits. You want to know what it is? You want to know what one of our worst habits is? One of Christianity's worst habits is when we talk about hope in places like this, we give the impression that hope is purely performative. Do you know what I mean by that? We give the impression that hope is actually dishonest optimism. So often when we talk about hope in places like this, we talk about hope and we communicate a type of hope that is a hope that learns, it's it's a carefully crafted response to pain and suffering so that you know exactly what type of face to put on in the presence of pain and suffering. You know exactly what Christianese to sprinkle into the conversation. You know exactly what cliches to sort of throw into the conversation. So often when we talk about hope in places like this, it's a mask for what we're really enduring. And I'll just say this. Friends, that type of hope, that performative kind of hope, it ain't helping Nobody, nobody. Because you see, friends, if hope is just this thing that I perform uh, so that uh, other people don't lose faith in my God, or more accurately, more honestly, it's a hope that I sort of make sure I show everyone so that they don't lose faith in my faith in God, Two devastating things happen. Number one, you harm other people who are watching you. And here's how you do it. They see you living with all this this fake optimism, this fake hope, this fake sort of belief. And then when they go through their own pain and suffering, you know what they do? They bail. Because they go, well, I guess I just don't have what it takes. I guess I'm not like him. I guess I'm not like her. I just don't believe 
just like as blindly as they do. And furthermore, the other devastating effect that happens when you and I practice a performative hope is that we ravage our souls. You ravage your soul anytime and every time you try to lie, not only to other people, but to God about what it is you're actually feeling. You're becoming someone who actually would have been offended when they walked past the cross and heard Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We've become people who go, oh. And so friends, this Advent season, um, I want to give you some good news. That the hope that we talk about the hope that's a, like a, a central part of our faith. Good gracious, it ain't dishonest. It's not a masquerade. It's not a mask. It's not lying. It's not performative. It's not a front. It's not a facade. It's real. It's genuine. And it's authentic. And here's the biggest difference. Here's the biggest difference between genuine hope and performative hope. Performative hope is something you do for other people to see. It's purely for other people to see. Authentic hope is something you practice to help you remember. Real Advent hope is something that you do in the midst of incredible darkness and negativity, and it looks like all the odds are stacked against you, hope is the thing that you do to remind yourself who you're made of, who lives in you. Hope is the thing you do to fight, scratch, and claw in order to remind yourself of how this story's gonna end. But I don't care what chapter we're on right now. I know how this thing ends. It ends with goodness. It ends with beauty. It ends with life and light forever. And so put differently, friends, hope is not something that you sing for other people. It's first and foremost something you sing to yourself. It's something you scream in the face of death, despair, and all their little friends. To say, you can't That's hope. And that's the song we're going to sing today. So in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Thank you for listening to The Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.